Welcome to Eric's Perspective. Uh, joining me today is Sandra Jackson Dumont, CEO and Director of the Lucas Museum of Narrative Art. Sandra, thank you so much uh, for joining us today. I really appreciate you taking the time to uh, talk with us. Oh, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. I'm excited to have a conversation with you. Oh, great. Thanks. And I think I have this right, but you were appointed the CEO and Director of the museum uh, back in 2020, right? Yes, January of 2020. I walked in the door January 15th, um, and then COVID happened, and everyone went home on March <laughs> <laughs> Great. So before we delve into the museum, I just thought we'd spend a little bit of time um, talking about you. Uh, for example, um, uh, starting at the beginning, uh, where are you from originally? I'm originally from San Francisco, the Fillmore District of San Francisco. Um, I lived there till I was 18 years old. And so that's where I was born and raised in that neighborhood. Ah, okay. And uh, looking back, what would you say was that first sort of moment where um, you were exposed to art, just not necessarily deciding you would go in that direction for a career, but, uh, you know, can you, can you remember your earliest exposure uh, to, to art? Um, I think as a child, I, I mean, San Francisco is a city that's filled with so many murals. And um, I mean, it's a great place if you want to look at the mural tradition to, to like LA. Um, San Francisco is that. And so I think we were always surrounded by art. I think, um, uh, I mean, I, I give a funny talk about the fact that I think the first time I realized something was really a work of art was when, um, you know, I looked in the Bible or was at church and saw like laminated Jesus, you know, um, mm -hmm. if you will, the little card that they give you. Um, and so I think that that was like one of my early exposures to understanding that there was a place where these things could be taken care of in a museum. And so I knew that an artist had painted that. I'd say my true earliest um, exposure to art was really um, uh, where I understood that there was someone who made those things um, was Good Times with J.J. Evans as a painter. Ah. Um, um, the great Ernie Barnes who, who painted um, those incredible works that um, were featured on that show. And so I knew that there was an artist, so I knew there was a maker, and I knew that there were um, there was a skill set associated with making things. And so I think that was probably where I understood that it's a profession. And, and um, so those things together, I think, really helped me understand that. Oh, excellent. Excellent. And um, did you also go to, well, you said you were in the San Francisco area until you were 18. So you obviously went to high school, uh, junior high, all the rest of that there. Did you mm -hmm. take uh, art classes when you were in uh, high school or, or uh, middle school? When I was in high school, I don't really remember if I took any art. I think I took, I remember drawing in middle school. Um, and I can't remember if it was just in between periods or not, or like just to fill my day. But in high school... I did take an art class uh, and I went to George Washington High School where there, um, there, there's incredible works of art in that school on the, um, there's WPA murals um, and many of them have, um, I think were in threat of being um, whitewashed uh, most recently, um, but um, but there are also the football field had uh, a, a relief sculpture by a great American artist, black artist, um, um, Sergeant Johnson, um, uh -huh. and um, and that that 
painting, I didn't, not painting, that relief sculpture, which was the width of the football field and two stories high. I didn't know the entire time I was there in high school that that was made by a Black artist. Um, it wasn't until I later on studied art history and realized that I was looking at my high school in a book. Uh, <laughs> wow. So. Do you know if it's still there? Oh, yeah, it's still there. It's 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 actually in, the, it's a structural piece. It's ah, in the wall. Okay. Um. Yeah. Fantastic. And so, so you, you went to college. Where did you go to undergraduate school? I went to undergrad in, um, in, um, in, in um, North of California, um, uh, North of California, in Northern California, Sonoma State University. I'm a proud um, product of the California State University system. And so I went to Sonoma State University, um, which was a small liberal arts college. Um, and um, years before I got there, people like Intisaki Shange taught there and folks like that. Oh, excellent. Yeah. And so when you first started out, what was your major? Biology. Biology. No one ever asked me that question. They just asked me what I what my degrees are in. They never asked me what I what my what I started out in. That's a great question. <laughs> <laughs> started out in biology. Yeah. Oh, excellent. And what attracted you? Uh, what attracted you to that as a major, biology? Well, when I was younger, I really wanted to do something that was important. I'm the first of five children. I'm the fifth of five children to be born, but the first of um, of my siblings to go to college uh -huh. um, and the second to graduate from high school of, uh, of the five of us. And, um, and all my siblings are amazing people who I credit with keeping me out of trouble. Um, and, um, and they... Um, I really found a need to want to be a doctor, one, because I was decent at the sciences. I was curious about the human body. I was really interested in helping people. Mm -hmm. And I grew up in a community where people suffered from diabetes and a lot of different things, including in my household, my mom. And, um, and so I spent a lot of time at hospitals. And so I thought this is an incredible thing. And also well, to be a doctor is a reputable reputation, a reputable oh, sure. um, kind of field to go into. and. Yeah. Um, and it also seemed to have a lot of social kind of clout at the time, you know, yeah. I mean, it still does. And so I really thought that that's how I could one, make a living two make a difference and three actually contribute to my community. Um, it wasn't until later that I realized that I could do that in many ways. Um, <laughs> yeah. Excellent. I think we're all the better for it. And we'll get into that in a minute, but at, so at what point did you change majors? So I'm assuming um, you were started out as a biology major, but then you went into, was it art history or, or do I have that right? Yeah. So I started out in biology. It was my senior year. Um, one of my friends who um, is an LA native um, had gone on, on the international exchange program to, um, she went to the Caribbean, interestingly enough. And I was just like, wow, what is that like? I didn't have a passport. I don't think I had traveled anywhere beyond like kind of California. Oh, I'd been to Mississippi, which is where my family's from, but I hadn't been anywhere else really. Mm -hmm. um, and um, and I'd maybe been to, you know, visit some other places, but Tennessee, places like that, but I'd only traveled in the U.S. Um, and so um, I... Um, went to the, I went to the exchange office to see if I could do what she did. And I realized that I could go on a national student exchange. 
Um, and so um, when I did that, I went to New York City on exchange. And it was like, at the same time, it reminded me of the Bay Area, like bigger, grittier, more robust version of the Bay Area, mm -hmm. politicized, all that stuff. But the thing that really struck me was that I was also very much interested in the arts. And so I had taken an art history class in undergrad as a part of my just matriculation requirements and fell in love with the stories, um, interestingly enough, now where I work. Um, <laughs> and I, story, I fell in love with the stories behind the art that the professors were telling. And I also love that these were like really kind of corny, Poindexter type personalities, but actually had like the intellectual heft of the greatest among us. And I, I felt like they um, could position ideas in interesting ways. So I went on exchange to New York. I actually studied organic chemistry and took some painting courses. So I went back to undergrad, went back to my home campus and I changed my major and I studied studio art and art history. Um, and, um, and that's, how I ended up where I am. Ah, excellent. And so the studio art part, was that uh, drawing and painting and that sort of thing? Or? It was drawing and painting, and I took ceramics courses as well, um, printmaking. Um, and um, uh, so, yeah, it was, a you know, a varied uh, uh, series of, of practices. And I'm curious, do you still uh, engage in your own creative uh, expressions through through art? I I don't make objects anymore, um, but I um, I so no, I'll just keep it there. No, okay. I don't make made ob make objects or make art anymore. I I participate in so many other creative efforts um, uh, socially, yeah. uh, whether it's dancing or um, or just you know, making little drawings and things like that myself, but I don't present myself as an artist. Uh, okay. And um, when you took art history, I I'm also curious to know, um, was there much talk in the classes about African-American art? You know, it's so interesting um, that you say, you asked that question, particularly because that actually was one of the challenges I had. When I went on exchange to New York, I took some art history courses and I had taken an art history course in undergrad in California and the professor was really progressive, Michael Schweiger, who's an incredible, incredible instructor. Um, even my Flemish art teacher was incredible. Um, I had really great art history professors in undergrad in, in California. Um, Michael really taught a course on contemporary art and he also talked about, um, taught a course on modernism and modern art movements. And so um, it was in that class that I had learned about the Black Arts Movement. I learned about, um, you know, just Obasi. I learned about, which is the organization of Black artists. Anyway, just all of those things. I learned about um, women artists that were kind of undervalued. Then I went to New York and I went on exchange to Hunter College. And there was like the, the basic Janssen's art history that I needed to take to kind of like ground me in the history of art. And I found that, that I was coming into that class with almost the appendix before walking into the class. I had learned all the stuff that would be in the addendum to the book right. before I read the book. Um, right. And I found that to be really interesting. And so while I was there, um, I had an internship at the Studio Museum in Harlem, mm. which is the beginning of so many things. Um, 
And, um, and I intentionally, when I went to New York, I had seen a documentary about the Studio Museum and I was like, I really wanna get an internship there. And I also wanted to you know, dabble in graphic design. And so I worked at a graphic design company. But to answer your question, I didn't see a lot of what I now actually promote and am very um, committed to integrating into the art historical canon, which is people of color, underrepresented people, um, women, um, uh, you know, people of varied, you know, um, genders across the spectrum and, um, and of different interests and content. And I didn't see that at all. I didn't see enough of it um, at all. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I remember uh, looking over the Jansen book, H.W. Jansen is what we're talking about. And I remember reading the, he had an entry in there for uh, Henry Tanner. And I'm glad that he included him, but I was a little disappointed in the way he was presented. It was almost like a way to, and and believe me, um, and I'm, all of a sudden I'm blanking out on the on Tanner's mentor's name, but um, it was a way to actually compliment him for for what he did for Tanner, which he deserved, but it was less about Tanner himself. I, I just thought that was a little disappointing in the Jansen book. And there was a lot else miss, missing, as you point out, and it ends up as, as an appendix later on. But uh, yeah. that's kind of a common story. And the same thing with the story about the women artists as well. So mm-hmm. um, that's sort of the shortcomings of our art history in, in many instances that I'm aware of. Um, so, you interned at uh, Studio Museum in Harlem. How, how was that, by the way? Um, I was an intern there, and um, and Hunter College had a great what they called externship program, where you could intern at different, you could apply for internships in different places, and they would broker the introductions. And so they introduced me to the Studio Museum, um, and uh, and I and they were so busy that I wasn't able to um, get a call back. And then a friend of mine had. Um, invited me to an event at the Studio Museum because his internship, excuse me, had invited, had set it up for him to go to this opening and, you know, at the time. So I went with him to it and then I had the good fortune of actually seeing in person the, the, the person that, um, that I was calling all the time. Then it was calling all the time. And so, um, and um she was just like, I'm really sorry. I haven't gotten back to you. Um, why don't you come up next week and we'll sit and we'll sit down. And a very shy Sandra at the time found herself in an interview, um, for an internship. And my first job, um, as an intern or my first post was as a, um, uh, an intern in the communications department, which I feel is um, a stop that everyone who works at a cultural institution should work in, uh, an air or a stop that everyone should have because it helps you think about how you communicate um, in writing and otherwise and position things. But my first in my first role was there. Then it was in the director's office, which also was very helpful. And then I ended up in curatorial um, uh, for the rest of my tenure there, and then came back many times over, and then ended up working there. Um, as well. Wow. Okay. And in the interim, uh, so you, after you graduated from Sonoma, uh, you went to graduate school, right? Yes. And, and where did you go to graduate school? I went to graduate school at Howard University. Ah, okay. In Washington, D.C. Ah, okay. And um, was obviously you were pursuing art history. Am, am I right about that? 
Yes, I, de I decided to study art history at, um, at that great school there. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I think that's fantastic because uh, Howard probably has one of the has a storied history on uh, with art. James Porter and David Driscoll and all those folks uh, down there mm -hmm. did a fabulous job. It has a tremendous collection. I think is still intact. If, I, if mm -hmm. I'm right about that. And so, what was your was it, what was your experience like at Howard? It was wonderful. Um, I went to Howard and um, and um, at um, I. I Felt like I chose that school um, because I, exactly the same things that you mentioned. Um, there's been recently there was a Black portraiture exhibition at LACMA that featured so many great Black artists. Many of them either taught at Howard University or were students at Howard University or somehow connected into that ecosystem. Um, uh, not the least of which were the great Tritobia Benjamin. Um, uh, you know, um, uh, just so many. I'm, I'm the Afrocobra. The, the you know Jeff Donaldson was the the chair of the department of the entire school, the fine art, the entire art school when I was there. Um, there was um, Floyd Coleman, who was a great scholar. Um, just incredible, incredible people. Um, Lois May Lou Jones, because I was a student at at um, at the at Howard University in the art program, Dr. Benjamin was the leading scholar, Tritobia Benjamin, on Lois May Lou Jones. Um, she that she actually couldn't travel with her, and I got to travel to New York City. Um, a very young Sandra with the legendary. Lois Melu Jones oh, wow. um, to New York City to an opening at the Studio Museum in Harlem, no less, where I saw, wow. you know, artists like Herb Gentry, um, uh, artists like, um, uh, I mean, scholars and curators like Laurie Sims, who all of these folks later became like true friends and mentors of mine to date, and um, and so I think that 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 the, the studio museum and, and, and has continued to play a role in my life, but Howard University, um, I think has not only been something that's been important to me intellectually, but a place that also, I think oftentimes can be underestimated for its social connections that lead to professional um, excellence, I think. Yeah, uh, and the collection alone there is phenomenal. Oh. Most historically black colleges and universities have incredible, incredible art collections. Um, and Howard is not the, not not nearly the least, least among them. It's really a great collection. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And what an opportunity to uh, travel with Lois M. Jones up to uh, New York. I, I, I'm getting goosebumps hearing you describe that. That's fantastic. And of course, we should mention Elizabeth Catlett is a graduate of uh, Howard University as well. Another, another legend, oh, yeah. legendary artist who is no longer with us, but uh, contributed yeah. so much to the canon. Yeah, and I mean, just to be able to, you know, walk the halls where these folks were. I, my, my, when you are a graduate student in art history, they allow you to have a space. Like, if you want it, you can either work from home or you can have a little space. And I. 
you know, they opened a room and it had like all the slides and all the stuff. And oh you know, there was like some of James Porter's stuff that was still there, you know, you know, first black road scholar. It's just like, oh, wow. you're sitting there and you're just like trying to reserve your little corner, but <laughs> it's this storage room of like all this iconic history behind you. And oh my goodness. you can't help but to like pick up a piece of paper and be like, it's the thinnest paper in the world back. Cause that's what they use. But you were like, <laughs> I can imagine that must have been extremely uh, beneficial and exciting all at the same time being down there. So after yeah. after you after you uh, earned your uh, degree from um, Howard, uh, what happened next? Where did you go? Um, uh, well, um, while I was in graduate school, I was teaching high school um, uh, at Duke Ellington School for the Arts, which is a world class, world-renowned um, um, arts high school, um, visual and performing arts high school in Los Angeles, I mean, in Los Angeles, in, um, in DC. Um, and I was working on exhibitions and curating shows and doing stuff like that. But after I finished graduate school, I got accepted to um, a fellowship at the Whitney, Whitney Museum of American Art. It's called the Independent Study Program, affectionately known as the ISP program, mm -hmm. which is a, um, a Marxist theory program centered in the arts. And so you study every, you know, Fanon, you know, Franz Fanon to Michel Foucault to Derrida, Nietzsche, Benjamin, you learn and you, you don't, you're not reading a lot of that for the first time. You're, you're actually applying it um, to artistic the artistic practice and conversation mm -hmm. so that you're actually unpacking works of art through a lens that is highly critical um, of the, the purpose and function of art intellectually and or um, in, in other ways, socially. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's a year program. And I was a, um, I was a, a curatorial fellow. They had curatorial fellows, um, arts fellows, and you or studio fellows and um, and critical studies fellows. I was a curatorial fellow, so I curated an exhibition with a couple of colleagues. I was also also showed work in in the art show as well. And so I moved to New York after DC, and I um, I participated in this program, and it was fantastic and yeah. challenging and um and incredible and it it actually pushed me into a different type of museum because i was you know all of our time was spent at the whitney um in their um their programming area and with curators etc and um and and with educators so it helped me understand the practical nature of building an exhibition working with complex ideas to make them accessible to the general public. Mm. Um, and while at the same time, making sure that one doesn't dummy down, dummy, dummy down the, com the, the content, but makes, makes it something that people really are interested in and that they find themselves connected to in compelling ways. And so, um, so uh, that's, I, that's where I was in New York. And then I, um, ended up being employed right after that at the at the Whitney um, oh. and curated independent projects and worked with galleries to write essays about artists and things like that. Oh, okay. Making a living in the art world and all. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. And at some point, you ended up at the at the Metropolitan Museum. Uh, am I skipping over too much by 
jumping from the no, Whitney to the next I, um, I, um, I, while I love being at the Met, I also work at the Studio Museum and the Seattle Art Museum. I worked in other places and I never wanted to work at the Met, but it was just such an incredible opportunity um, to re-envision the programming that was being done there and, and, um, and also um, create, whether it was very academic programming, so funding fellowships or working with school children or designing curriculum for the city or, you know, whether, or pulling together major convenings for artists like Carrie James Marshall or for you know, any number of artists something or creating and building a conservation program in India. Um, and so there's a whole range of things that um, uh, we did there and I'm just touching the surface, sure. but, um, but it felt like an opportunity to understand um, what it meant to um, be in that, at that scale and how we could actually make it feel intimate and accessible to so many people who could benefit from the resources that that great institution offers. Oh yeah. And I'm just curious, cause you mentioned Laurie Sims earlier. Was she there at the same time you were there? Oh no. Laurie, um, Laurie was at the Met for 25 years. Um, and I worked with, um, when I went to work at the studio museum, after I left the Whitney, I went to work at the Met. I mean, at the studio museum, 2000, I think it was, um, maybe a little before, but I went to work at the Studio Museum and Thelma and I used to be at the, at the Whitney together. She was more, you know, um, see Thelma Golden. She yes. was a very incredible curator, director of the Studio Museum. Um, she left the, the Whitney and went to work at the Studio Museum. Oh. La, under Laurie Sims, who had left the Met to go and work at the Studio Museum. Oh. And so then they called me and invited me to work at the Studio Museum and, um, and recruited me to work there. So we became this team of three that were working at the Studio Museum in Harlem. So that's where I became intimately connected to Lowry. Oh. I knew her before then, uh -huh. um, but, um, but I became intimately connected with her there because I worked with her every day. And, um, and um, so she wasn't at the Met when I was there. So years later, after I went to, I left the studio, went to Seattle, came back, I ended up, um, uh, uh, Lowry had retired from the studio oh. at that before I even left. So she, she, she had been at the, at the Met for 25 years, though, before I got there. Right. And as I understand it, she was the first uh, African-American uh, curator at, at the Met, right? Yeah, she's the first, first black curator, not just African-American, black of any kind. Oh, there of, any, the of any origin. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 So she um, and and it's only into and then um, and then I was the first um person, black person to be in a senior leadership role there. Um, and you think about it, it's an amazing place, but over the course of 150 years, like that's, that's a lot of time that's passed. Sure. But since then, there are a few black curators there now that they've hired over the last couple of years. Oh, that's, that's good uh, to hear. Tomasini, um, and, um, Andrea Achi, she is a incredible medieval Nubianist. Mm -hmm. Um, and you, you, you um, said Nubianist mm -hmm. as a Nubia in, uh, Egypt? As a Nubia. Oh. Yeah. People think about medieval art and they think Europe only, but medieval is a period in time. It can be anywhere. Sure. And so she actually has, a 
and uh, a specialization in Nubian art as it relates to the medieval period. And she can curate a whole bunch of other things, but that, I think she's such a special, um, incredible intellect. Um, oh. And then Achille Tomasini is another incredible human being as well. Oh, I love who it. Comes out of modern and contemporary. He specializes in Leger, but he is, um, and he's from Brownsville, New York. Uh, um, <laughs> incredible brother. Excellent. Yeah. Excellent. I love that though, the Nubian art. That's that's fantastic. I love it. And she's not in the African art department. She's in the medieval department. Ah, I, I get it. I get it. Yeah. Yeah. So what was it like in Seattle, by the way? Uh, I know that the Seattle Museum, uh, one notable artist that's shown there is uh, Jacob Lawrence. Uh, did you have any, uh, I don't know about the time frame or not, but did you have any encounters with him by any chance while you were there? Or is that, does that come oh. later? Oh, no, he um, had passed away by the time I got to Seattle. Oh, okay. But my relationship to Jacob Lawrence is um, is actually pretty significant. I... Um, when I was at the Studio Museum in Harlem, Gwen Knight, um, Jacob Lawrence had passed, and Gwen Knight um, and her, um, you know, friends had decided that they were going to give some of their resources, hers and Jacob Lawrence's resources, to museums, and so they had gifted a significant amount of money to the Studio Museum to fund um, a residency at the Studio Museum or continue to support the residency program that's already been there. Mm-hmm. Excuse me. I left the studio museum and they also funded a, a teen program that I oversaw there or I built there. So I left there and I went to Seattle. And when I got to Seattle, the then director of the museum was an incredible woman named Mimi Gates. She um, uh, is the stepmother of Bill Gates Jr. So she's oh. married. She was married to Bill Gates Sr. Okay. Um, and Mimi Gates is the museum director. Um, and she hired me at the Seattle Art Museum. And when I got there, um, she asked. She told me that she wanted me to be the curator to oversee. Um, the Gwendolyn Knight Jacob Lawrence Prize. Oh. And so over the last, um, uh, since 2006, is it 2006? No, since 2000 and, yeah, 2006, I've been giving, every other year I give a prize to um, a Black artist who shows promise, who is not necessarily emerging um, but but is not necessarily super well known. All of those artists that we've given that award to have since become very well known. So you have the Astor Gates. Actually, this past year, I gave it to Lauren Halsey. Oh. And Lauren is an LA through and through artist. Um, oh, and she has a show right now at the Seattle Art Museum. They get a show and they get um, money. And, um, and so, and the hope is that the museum will acquire works from every one of the shows. So Lauren Halsey, Latoya Ruby Frazier, who just had a show, um, it may even still be up at the African American Museum here. Yeah. The Astor Gates, um, uh, Titus Kafar, the list is really, it goes on. It's a really wonderful group of people. Um, and I love Sandra that. Perry, who's reached, whose work is actually in the Venice Biennale right now. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah, some great artists. And so those are all artists that were supported by money that came from a fellowship that Gwen Knight and Jacob Lawrence left money for. Well, really Gwen Knight did. She said she wanted to support artists that shared their values. And so, and she wanted to make sure that there was always a place for black artists at the Seattle Art Museum. It's the only gallery um, that has the name of an artist on it, at least as far as I 
at least up until a couple of years ago, there were no, everyone, all the galleries have somebody's name on it, but none of them have artist names. And it says when, the Gwendolyn and I, Jacob Lawrence Gallery um, in, inside of the Seattle Art Museum. And so there's, there's, their their support for artists continues. I think that's fabulous and obviously very important for the development of uh, artists that we may not otherwise have exposure to. Uh, for those viewers and listeners who are not aware, Gwen on the Night is an artist herself and was the wife of uh, Jacob Lawrence. Yeah, and he taught and lived in Los An in um, in Los Angeles in in Seattle. Um, for, well, for well over 30 years um, and was a tenured professor. I think he might have been the first artist in the country to receive, or maybe he's one of the few artists, certainly I think the first Black artist to receive tenure at a major university. Um, and um, he was beloved in that city and they rode the bus every day. They rode the bus everywhere. They didn't drive. Oh, wow. <laughs> I love that. I have great stories about them if you ever want to hear them. But. Oh, no, absolutely. And th those are great stories, too. It's nice to see their commitment to continuing uh, the support of artists and so forth that require it and need it and deserve it so much. Yeah. Okay, so um, now let's see. You were at the Met, and from the Met, you came to where you are now. Is that right? Yes. Okay. came to the Lucas Museum, yeah. Uh, uh, excellent. So I think maybe... We should, um, can you tell us a little bit about the, the Lukes Museum, which is, as I, if I'm correct, it's still uh, under construction, right? It is still under construction. I'm thrilled to say that I stood on the fifth floor of the building um, uh, earlier this week um, and saw the view of Los Angeles that I think is going to be a new view for Mitty. Um, it's, uh, we're a museum dedicated to the art of storytelling, and um, we believe that through visual storytelling, the museum will expand the role of art and museums for society. Um, the museum is, is, um, is an institution that we hope will inspire thought-provoking ideas um, and conversations that are relevant. Um, and we also want them to be relevant within and beyond our geographic boundaries. We definitely want to be about the local, but we think that what happens locally and the conversations that we are having really can radiate and be a part of what's happening in the world. And they're tethered to what's happening in the world. Yes. Um, and we think that um, um, one of our other efforts is to really catalyze more connected and empathetic spaces so that this, we believe that this museum um, and what we do here um, will connect us to create a more just society. That That is our moonshot. Oh, I love that. And uh, so when you say connect elsewhere, I'm assuming because of this age of uh, electronics, that obviously that's one way uh, people can access by going online, I'm guessing. But does this mean, um, and I know a lot of museums do this anyway, traveling exhibitions and do, will you also have like satellite spaces and, and things like that? Or I'm not, you know, I'm not sure exactly um, how else you plan to reach out. I was just wondering if you could tell us. Yeah. So um, I, right now, I don't see us having um, a satellite space, especially since I'm trying to just get this building open. <laughs> yeah. You top, top for hard um, to get that going. Talk to me after we open this building. <laughs> yeah. Um, but the reality is that we believe that this, um, the, the work we have actually um, is available um, and that we will be 
having traveling exhibitions. Um, we want to be a museum that has this work out in the world. Um, and for this to be a beacon of, of engagement for people to come here. Um, uh, certainly through technology, we can be many places, but I also think we really want to be old school about it. Yeah. We should be where we want to be. And so if I want us to be in, in East LA, I should be going to East LA. You yeah. know what I mean? If I, I want understand. us to be, so we should never um, trade in always the, the the physical for the for the digital we yes. want to figure out ways that there can be both and it doesn't mean that it also has to be one or the other i think that we want to be a place that is dialogic where people where we're we're in dialogue with the world yes. um far too long museums and cultural institutions have kind of sat neatly adjacent to what's happening in society and we yeah. believe that the art that is created that is considered narrative really is um, uh, sometimes it's, it's, it's a positive conversation. Sometimes it's not a, it's a negative conversation. Sometimes the work that's been created about, um, about people doesn't necessarily reflect truth. And so we think that this can be a place for discourse about some of those critical issues. And we think that can happen online in real time and um, in writing and, um, and, um, and physically in other places as well. Uh, I like that. And, you know, you were talking earlier, even in your earlier experience, it seemed, I heard you use the word accessible a lot. And I think for a lot of people, um, when you say museums and you say art and so forth like that, they kind of get intimidated. And what I like about what you're saying is you're trying to sort of be part of the community, not sitting outside of it, maybe sitting up on top of a pedestal or something. And people are uh, feel like they're um it's not, they're not capable of reaching uh yeah. an understanding about what's going on in there it sounds like you want to be a part of the whole uh conversation yeah you know um i've done studies on how um people are engaged in museums um and there are a couple of things that are often said and um and i feel like uh they're i think people assume or what what they get from reports is that people don't feel welcome that's what a lot of content gets boiled down to a lot of the interviews is that you know people don't feel welcome the the community doesn't feel welcome or they don't understand or they feel like you're too elite or they're intimidated yes. and then when i when i have gone beyond the the report and into the comments of many of these reports that I myself have commissioned at times. Mm -hmm. What is really being said, or when I'm in interviews or in conversations with people is that it's not that they, people are intimidated, they're just not interested in what you're presenting at times. Oh. In some cases, it is really truly that simple because it's more intimidating in some ways to go to Neiman Marcus or some other clothing store that actually is a luxury brand because you it feels you know like you're walking into something where you know the price of things you know all these things you yes. know that people are they have most of them have guards and those things but our people people of color people in general people that are from varied backgrounds make their way to those stores yeah if for no other reason just a window shop you know what i mean but we make our ways <laughs> to those stores um, and we also will save our money to buy the thing that we really want. Mm -hmm. And so if we translate that idea into cultural practice or into museums, 
There's a reason why people sometimes don't consume some of the things that are happening in cultural institutions. And I don't mean they need to be popular or they need to be anything other than what they are, but we do need to pay attention to connecting with people like you would any other product that you would be trying to share with people. And I think the art world has historically been an institution or the arts have been institutions that are kind of um, have created the reputation for themselves that people don't get us. Um, they aren't cultured enough. They don't know. They think, and I think that creates a safety for a lot of people that are functioning in these spaces because it creates a, um, a, a hierarchy and a, um, a specialization. For me, I actually, um, I love when people go on tours with me or they do things with me or people that I find also compelling because they are like, I get that. I can ask a question, I can share my point of view. Um, and I think that um, what we're doing is what a lot of businesses just do, which is think about who you want to talk to, find out as much as you can about who you want to talk to, mm -hmm. and go talk to them and speak the language that they speak, right? No, <laughs> so, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and I think that um, I also want to say that one of the things that I have found is that the most under-resourced people um, uh, in that I have ever connected with, whether they're my family members or people or myself at a certain point or studies that I've done, almost everyone understands what a museum is. Uh, okay. And right. they understand that's important. That belongs in a museum. So when you go to like a Nike or something like that, or a shoe store, you walk in and if they're, if it's nicely designed. What do you see? You see a sneaker, you see a tennis shoe, a sneaker, a shoe on a podium mm -hmm. with a, almost like that worker behind you. And it's a, uh, a, a sneaker or a purse on a podium. Yeah. And they'll even go so far as put a plexiglass box on it oh, to yeah. make it feel like a museum. So there are all these like subtle cues that come from this place that creates value called a museum mm. because, and so people are like, you belong in a museum or that belongs in a museum or yeah. I want to be in a museum, you know? Yes. And so people understand the purpose of them. We just need them to feel more soulful and intellectually rigorous in a way that doesn't create intellectual oppression where there's a distance between the idea and the person you're trying to connect to. Um, and so I think that people get museums and maybe it's because I'm working from that place that I've seen a real abundance of participation in a lot of work that I feel like we've been doing mm -hmm. um, in museums that I've worked in. Um, but uh, hands down, I think that some people don't consume, most people don't consume certain things because they just don't, they're not interested in that. Uh, when you say that, you know, I can remember having discussions with professionals in the art world and some of the feedback I was hearing is that what you've just said is especially true with young people who are like really into uh, social media and so forth. And perhaps um, things aren't as interesting and attractive to them uh, because they're finding uh, they're satisfying that need in other ways. Uh, do you think that's a valid point? Have you noticed that? No, I don't think, I think if you were to walk in, I worked at the, when I worked at the Seattle Art Museum, we did a five-year study funded by the Wallace Foundation. 
and it was focused on 18 to 35 year olds. So that was between 2005, six and 2015, 14, 13, 14, something like that. Mm -hmm. And we um, studied their behaviors and their interest in art and culture and also in philanthropy or giving to museums. And what we found was that um, they really needed, they, they're not subscription people. So don't, that, that, that was a big thing. You know, it's like, I don't want to give my money to something and then not be able to use it. But they did sign up for gyms. And so, um, and when they signed up for a museum or a cultural institution, and when they were interviewed, they would say, if I, get, if, um, if I signed up for a gym and I was moving and I couldn't use my membership anymore, I'd want to shut it down and um, and then make sure that I, weren't, I wasn't charged anymore. Mm -hmm. For a museum or cultural institution membership, they'd be like, I'll just let it run out oh. because I know that it's going to a good cause. Uh -huh. And they also saw, so that's one piece of it. I also think that what I found there was that when we did a study of the museum's attendance, there was 33.3% of the people that came to that museum were between the ages of 18 and 35. Oh, wow. If I added people below the age of 18, I'm sure that number would go up because it would include school groups and families, et cetera. So it would go up dramatically. Mm -hmm. um, but the membership was not that I see. because they don't, there wasn't that kind of participation from a membership point of view. That's just not how that community or that age demographic ran through the world. At the time when I started the study, I was squarely within the demographic. By the time I was done, I was outside of it. So I actually was one of the people that was kind of like, I didn't fit in it. I didn't, I didn't consume culture that way. I would never have a subscription to the opera because I wouldn't want to be so pinned down to coming every whatever day. I wouldn't buy tickets to a football team or a basketball game or something. Right. I wouldn't buy season tickets. That's just me. Oh, there are other people that sit outside of that. The same thing is true when I went to the Met and I did, I ran those same numbers and literally 33.3% of the total attendance of the Metropolitan Museum of Art fit within, not the membership, but the attendance numbers yes. were between the ages of 18 and 35. When I took people younger than 18, uh, 18 to 35 or younger than 18, that number went up to 42% of the people that were actually at, coming to the Met on an annual basis at that time almost half of the population fit in the younger demographic, which tells us that they actually are coming to these things. But when we measure participation in museums, we often do it through how people become members. I see. Um, and so it's actually really phenomenal. This generation of young people um, on social media, they want to come to museums and they want to take pictures of stuff. They want to come to the events. They want to be... But they are doing what is what I found in Seattle to be the the magic ingredient, and it was it's what we do for our board members. But we just need to remember that we need to do it for the general public, which is that they want the social and the intellectual to happen at the same time. Oh. They want to think about when you go to an event as a commissioner or as a a, a community member. There's a cocktail reception, yeah. so the social people talk, and then you get to look at the works of art. Right. For the general public, we're like, go look at art. Right. And so we have to create these spaces for people to kind of come together in intimate and social ways um, with art and culture. That doesn't mean drinks. That doesn't mean all of those kinds of things, but it means creating spaces where people can play and think at the same time. And those aren't considered mutually exclusive. Ah, okay. And I'm assuming then that's 
gone into the design of the, of the museum. Is that, is that right? We're working on that. Yes. All the things that we do, we really want to make sure that they're, we're very um, uh, specific about the kinds of experiences that we're creating. Every experience won't be that because some people do just want to come and hear a lecture or hear a talk and participate in a conversation. Some people want to walk the park, the 11 acre park that we're creating. Ah. Um, but perhaps they can walk the park with artists or ah. they can walk the park and we can do poetry readings while we walk the park. At the Met, um, our live arts team that I oversaw um, we had something called the Museum Workout, where we commissioned dancers to choreograph an entire workout through the entire museum. And so you would stand in front of a work of art and you would hear about the work of art while you're moving in the galleries. Oh, wow. So it's really like thinking differently about space and place and the purpose of it. Um, so museums less as temples and more as temples and temples and living rooms, living rooms and um and dance halls dance halls and classrooms you know they can be all of that if we just let our hair down a little bit you know oh, i love that i love that i, I like i like that idea a lot yeah, yeah. and i think uh, all of us not just here uh, not in the southern california area but people coming to visit will, will be in for a real sounds like a real treat uh for sure um can you talk a little bit about the collection? I was just curious. So, so that folks understand, because uh, the museum is called the Lucas Museum of Narrative Art, and you mentioned earlier that uh, the art is telling stories. And so how does, how does that play out? Can you give just a couple of examples of how that might uh, play out? Oh, sure. Um, so the number one question people ask me is, what is narrative art? And I often ask them back. I usually say, tell, why don't you tell me? I'll tell you what it is from my point of view, but you tell me what you think it is. And so um, I'll ask you that really quickly, Eric. Well, you know, the first thing that jumps into mind is, uh, so when I opened my gallery in 1988, it was with Elizabeth Catlett, and she had a series called I Am the Negro Woman series. Mm -hmm. And that was just obvious narrative art. She had mm -hmm. 14 panels, originally 15, but 14 panels that told the story of various experiences and contributions by African-American women over the years. And so the first thing that jumps into my mind, and that's kind of a, an obvious one, but uh, that's what really immediately came to my, to my own mind. Uh, you know, this art that uh, in this case tells the story about uh, black women. And of course it was done in the forties. So black women up to the 1946, 47 era. Yeah. Well, you hit it on the head. It's an, it's, um, it's, it, the narrative art, um, well, narratives in general are the stories we live with, right? They're, they're, what, they're what's around us. They're also the stories that we actually manufacture at times. Yes. Um, you see it in media, you see it in your loved ones, you see it everywhere, right? Yeah. Um, you can construct narratives. Um, but under all of those circumstances, they inform how we view and understand the world. They give shape to, um, and they they inform characters. Um, they inform real events. They um, they inform imagined realities, and they also inform systems of power. Um, and narrative art gives visual form to very specific stories, or um, I mean, and they and the meanings and actions and the intentions behind those stories. 
Um, they are often readily apparent in the arrangement of the figures that are presented um, uh, or the representations of some actions, icons, symbology, that all can create narratives. Um, uh, narratives can also be suggested through mood and atmosphere or the use of, um, of symbols, as I mentioned, but um, the perspective of the viewer is super important in narrative art. Uh, and so it, people bring their own ideas and issues and ideas to works of art in general. Um, and then there's the intention of the artist, but there's a lot left to interpretation. Right. Right. Um, and I think that narrative art also reflects human experiences and aspirations, um, and they can be read across time, culture and language. Mm -hmm. um, so the term narrative art um, really had um, its first appearance, like in the 1960s. Uh, and visual storytelling has always been a central function of art. So much of the art world has kind of been shaped around this notion of narrative art in many ways. Um, our approach is to take an inclusive approach to visual storytelling, um, exploring both academically rooted and mass produced art forms. Um, so taking something that um, was uh, really informed like Rembrandt um, and, and, and then also something that's a part of popular culture. So sculptures that were put in town squares to help create a certain image and narrative about people and place. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, and also just real like printed materials. So like, you know, um, uh, publications that were printed or posters that were printed, um, and so um, it includes a host of things. And so if I were to give you a few examples, um, I would say, of course, everyone knows that Norman Rockwell is a, you know, we would look at his sure. paintings, most of his paintings as narrative, but there are lots of artists who are, um, uh, Gerhard Richter is a well-known artist, and um, but known as an abstractionist, mm -hmm. but his work, he, he, his work only arrives there because he actually went through the, the space of narrative art. So um, I feel that most artists have had some dance with narrative art. And so you can, I, I don't know that I would say these are narrative artists. I would say this is a narrative artwork. Oh, that makes sense. Example. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So Artemisia Gentileschi, um, we have Artemisia, we have two um, Artemisia Gentileschi paintings in our collection. Um, I would say John Biggers, we have like beautiful John Biggers, Charles White's, we have Carrie James Marshall, um, we have um, a wonderful LA-based artist, Judy Baca. A lot of people know that we have her incredible, incredible archive, as well as uh, like all of the drawings that made up the LA River Project. Um, uh, um, yeah, I can go on. We have indigenous art. We have art by the Tongva people in our collection. We have uh, Tongva artists, I should say, in our collection. Um, yeah, it cuts across place and time. We have works as, um, we have works from the 1700s in our collections up to works that were made last year. I love that. You know, I love the inclusiveness of it, not just, um, culturally, ethnically and so forth, but time, 
and mm-hmm. uh, style and and like you said, it's not just uh, fine art, so to speak, but it's also commercial art. Sounds like uh, uh, published um, like posters and so forth, like that. I think it's, I think that's, yeah. I think that's great that you're doing that. But I should say that the works that we've created, so we have the original. So let's say it's a comic book. Mm-hmm. So we have the original cover of said Spider-Man that the artist made. I see. Not necessarily. So people can actually start to see that work in the way that, say, Carrie James Marshall sees that work. He doesn't see that as less than his fine art. He right. sees it as something that should be hung alongside that work. Yes. Um, yes. It's, um, you know, if you were to say, um, you know, I'm trying to think of uh, other really good examples of that. Um, we have um, the original posters for certain films that were made, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, we, of course, have um, the separate cinema archive and collection. So we also have like this incredible collection of collections here. Oh. And these were all, everything I'm mentioning are works that were collected by the museum. And some of, and, and then there's the works that, that will be gifted to us as well. Oh, fantastic. And am I right, to, if I remember correctly from, talking with you before you'll have a library at the museum is that correct yes we'll have a library i stood in it yesterday it's wonderful it's a library it will look out the window is like two and a half stories high it's beautiful come um a kind of half circle um window that looks out onto an incredible lawn of grass um that i hope to see People laying on, reading, dancing, doing all kinds of things. It's um, it's a the library is pretty special, and we we see it as somewhat of of um the stacks where we'll be bringing what has normally been kind of tucked away into the public space where people can see things that they've never seen before. Lots of things from the Lucasfilm archive, of which we are the um, lucky recipients of as well. Oh wow. Um, and so, yeah, that's fantastic. Will film be involved? You mentioned, uh, Lucas, will there be any, um, film in the archive or, or no? We, um, we actually have two theaters, um, uh, 299 seats each, um, that are state of the art theaters. And so we will show films. Um, and we also want to, um, uh, so we don't, we won't have, a ton of films at our site, but we will show films. I see. Um, so we won't have films, a ton of film material in our collection. We have some, definitely we have film cells, but we love the fact that our partner, um, the Academy Museum will do, does that very well. Yes. And, um, and we can partner with them on any of the other efforts um, as well. Yeah. yeah. That's a newly opened and excellent museum. Uh, I'm glad you brought it up. That's a, uh... LA is, is definitely uh, humming along here with the, between that and you guys and some of the other stuff we have here. This is fantastic. LACMA's going to open. They're like expansion projects and new things that are happening. I love what they're doing at the Museum of Natural History. They're creating, like really changing that end part of their building that's coming, that's going to be across the street from ours. I really see this as like an opportunity to create really truly a cultural district that feels like a hub, like a location to come to, Absolutely. Um, but also be people's backyards. I'm a firm believer that people shouldn't have to go to, uh, to a whole bunch of other cities 
to get something they can get in their neighborhood, I think they should be able to come and walk over to a place. And I think um, uh, even if they can't walk here, they can get off the train and, and then walk. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. But I think this is a good moment for Los Angeles. I'm excited about being here. Um, it's just a, it's a city I never imagined living in. Um, I grew up coming here as a child, visiting my aunt who lived in Carson actually. Uh -huh. um, and my mother's older sister. And, um, and I never imagined um, living here. And I, um, I can't imagine being anywhere else at this moment. It's such a great, it's, it's, a, it's an incredible moment in this city. It really is. I couldn't agree more. I'm very excited. And so that kind of begs the question, uh, uh, about when do you think the museum will be open? I know that's probably a tough one because uh, sometimes, <laughs> sometimes things get delayed. I know COVID probably pushed everything back quite a bit, but do you have any yeah, ideas? Yeah, we're saying 23, 24 um, um, is when uh, we hope to um, be ready. Um, but that's, that's all I can say right now. Oh, sure, uh, sure. Not to and, pin you down. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I'm also just one who's always trying to like speak the truth and point to hope, um, <laughs> this kind of thing. And so, um, so that is the truth. I'm, we're looking at 23, 24, when okay. that changes and we get something more solid and a specific date, I really will sing it from the mountaintop. Excellent. And so that gives me this chance to ask for those viewers and listeners who want to kind of follow what's going on. Is there a website or is there any other method that they can reach out and find out what's happening? Yeah. Lucasmuseum.org is our website. You can also go to our um, Instagram. We post periodically there. Um, and that's Lucas Museum. If you type that in on um, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, we sometimes host conversations in those spaces. Um, we do a lot of talking about other cultural institutions in the city and, um, and other things that are happening. Um, we've really been trying to, since I got here, um, we've tried to be where things are happening, not just trying to create more, more. Um, we're trying to support what's there and participate in what's in other places and then also do some some programming. But we needed to put our heads down and really get ready for um, what will really, truly be um, uh, a big moment for everyone working here. And um, I think people I, I keep telling folks, you know, we're not just building a building. We're building a, a 200 plus year proposition. That's what this institution is. Yeah. Um, you don't build museums and they go away tomorrow. Like the whole goal is to actually have them live in the world in a way that what was once considered just um, an institution or a new proposition in the Whitney, the Studio Museum, um, you know, LACMA, the Natural History Museum, um, the Victorian Albert Museum, you know, the International Center for Photography, all of these places were places that at one point people were like, why do you need to build that? Yeah. You know, um, and MoMA, you guys don't need a, an institution dedicated to modern art, but there wasn't one dedicated to that. You know, right. um, the same thing with, you know, the African-American museum here, like there needed to be an African-American museum so that there could be carving out of space and research and depth and collecting practice and all of that stuff. So people can really see it and, and it be, you know, unpacked and supported. The same thing is true for, you know, you know, photography, which was the stepchild of the art world for so long, you know, and it wasn't until, 
you know, some institutions like the International Center for Photography said, we're going to go and create a place in the sun for this work. Narrative art, which is interesting, is, is um, it, it's do, we're doing the same thing, but narrativity fits into every single thing I just mentioned, whether yes. it's fashion or style or, or photography or any of those things. And so we actually will um, uh, uh, be very much like those places where they, we, 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 we will need to stand the test of time. And so it's, it's a good moment. It's really well, fantastic. I am very, very excited. And, uh, and I'm sure everybody is eagerly awaiting uh, the opening of this museum. I want to thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your perspective, Sandra Jackson Dumont. And uh, I want to ask everybody to uh, be sure to be on the lookout for this museum, follow the, uh, what's going on on the website and the social media outlets, as she mentioned. And don't forget to subscribe. Thanks for joining us at Eric's Perspective. Thanks so much, Sandra. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it.